This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. This week we continue through our series on the lectionary readings in the book of Acts through Eastertide. And we're exploring how the Holy Spirit empowered the early church to speak and act with boldness in the name of Christ, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria, Antioch, and the whole world. And that same spirit through which Christ lived his earthly ministry indwells the apostles and now indwells us. That same spirit lives in us. And in every age, the church has looked to the book of Acts as its charter. The moment that the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples with power is a defining moment in human history. As the theologian Michael Horton tells us, because the Holy Spirit dwells with those who were baptized and professed faith in Christ in the same way it dwelt with the apostles at Pentecost, Post-Pentecost, Peter has more in common with us who live 2,000 years later than he had in common with John the Baptizer, who shared the same cultural formation as Peter. Do you believe that this morning? That is the truth of the gospel. We, too, have more in common with those who share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body and one spirit with us than with those in our political tribe who don't know Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Maybe that's the harder thing for us late moderns to believe. The thing that we have most in common is Jesus, not our political tribe. And this is the radical and subversive message of Acts. If you are baptized then the church, which is the body of Christ, is the most important community that you belong to. It is more central than our communities at work, than our political tribe, than our ethnic and our national identities. The church of Jesus Christ is the most central community in your life if you are baptized and profess faith in Jesus. Christianity makes one people out of the scattered peoples of the world. The 4th century Bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, put it this way. It's one of my favorite quotes in all of Christian history. So get ready. <laughs> of one and of the other, Christ makes a single body. Thus he who lives in Rome looks on the Indians as his own members. Is there any union to be compared with that? Christ is the head of all. Christ is the head of all. If this is true, and it is, then there is a great deal about our daily lives that we assume is true that isn't. And there are a great many priorities that we have that we think are central that are not. That's what the apostles discovered. That's what Philip the apostle discovers today in our passage on the Ethiopian eunuch. And that's what people in every age have discovered as they have met Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. This morning, as we turn to that passage on the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, I'm going to argue that this passage overturns Philip's basic assumptions about who belongs, 
who's in the covenant and who's out. And subsequently, it unsettles some of our basic assumptions about the world as well. I want to argue this morning that the mission to the Gentiles doesn't begin with that great vision that Peter has in Acts chapter 10 with Peter's visit to Cornelius, but it begins right here in the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. The the angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says, hey, go have this conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the power of the Holy Spirit falls upon him. And Philip, this good Jew who understands what the boundaries and the parameters of the covenant are, has this amazing evangelistic conversation with this man who happens to be reading the scroll of Isaiah, the holy scriptures of the people of Israel. And the book of Acts is filled with episodes like this. The apostles are always running to catch up with the Holy Spirit is doing. And in this episode, like, Philip is literally running to catch up with what the Holy Spirit is doing. The incident is actually, like, kind of comical, right? Here's Philip. He's probably sweating profusely because this is the hottest part of the day, and he's in a desert. <laughs> and he's, he's running up alongside this carriage that's probably moving at a pretty good clip, and he's trying to, you know, engage this high-level government official in questions of literary criticism. <laughs> it's, it's really funny if you begin to think about it, right? But this incident where we, we literally have this moment enacted of Philip running alongside of this carriage to try to catch, catch up with what the Holy Spirit is doing is a kind of icon. It's a little miniature portrait of what the whole book of Acts is about. The settled expectations of the Second Temple Jewish worldview are being blown open as the apostles are sent and commissioned by Jesus Christ as they're filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim mightily the power of his name and of his cross to all the nations. All the nations are being brought in to God's people. And now Philip's expectations are most certainly overturned in this passage. But we who read these texts in late modernity have a whole different set of assumptions that this text is urging us to overcome. The most important one that this text challenges, I want to say to you this morning, is our assumption about the kind of cosmos that we live in. We live in a world that the 19th century sociologist Max Weber described as disenchanted, secular, closed. The basic institutions and structures that constitute our lives we think of as secular. As the theologian John Milbank says, we believe that our lives run on the steam of the purely human. The steam of the purely human. So what that means is that for even most Christians living through modernity, our imagination about God's interaction with the world is basically deistic. God is distant and removed from the creation, and he occasionally drops in, intervenes to make something happen or to prevent something from happening or to redirect events so that they conform to his overall design for the thing. And we assume as natural that human institutions, relationships, societies can be managed and governed by the steam of the purely human. You know, on the margins of our lives, we can still be lured by phenomena that Freud called the uncanny. Things that we feel, you know, maybe lack explanation from from a purely naturalistic point of view. And this can express itself in a number of different ways in our culture. If you begin to look, it's everywhere, right? Whether it's a belief in karma or luck or the power of, you know, channeling positive thoughts and internal energy towards the universe to attract positive things back to you. You know, I read about that from Deepak Chopra yesterday. But this basic intuition that there's kind of more to reality than, than we can see also coheres, ironically, with this deeper sense of disenchantment. 
a deeper skepticism about the transcendent breaking into our everyday, a depth sense that what we can see and touch and measure is bedrock reality. But when we read Luke, there can be absolutely no doubt that the cosmos, as he imagines it, and as he invites us to imagine it, is radically different from that. It is fully and thoroughly enchanted. It is saturated with the presence of God and all manner of intermediary beings that either do his bidding or strive to go against his will. God is as high as the highest heavens in Luke's thought, but also, as Augustine says, he is nearer to us than our own bodies. That's the world as Luke sees it. He is transcendent and distinct from his creation and yet intimately attentive to it, flooding it with his presence. The world as Luke sees it is porous rather than a closed cosmos. It is alive and electric with spiritual potential and possibility. Luke lives with this expectation that at any moment something dramatic will happen. Some movement of the spirit will occur and drive the church to a new level. This passage begins as an angel of the Lord appears to Philip and tells him, go talk to the eunuch. And then filled with the presence of the Spirit, Philip proclaims the gospel, the power of the cross to the eunuch. And then again at the end of the passage, Philip is spirited away by the, by the Holy Spirit so that the eunuch sees him no more. I mean, that's a lot of supernatural activity for one passage, right? And this story, though, is not anomalous, but representative in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the Holy Spirit drives the action of Luke Acts to such a substantial degree that some scholars speak of the Holy Spirit as the protagonist of these books. It's a helpful way to think about it, actually. But these intermediate beings, the angels, play just as prominent a role in Luke Acts. I mean, they announced the miraculous births of John the baptizer and then Jesus to Zechariah and then to Mary and then to the shepherds. And when Jesus prays in Gethsemane and surrenders his will to the Father, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then in Acts, the Sadducees had the apostles arrested. And during the night, the text says, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. It is an angel of the Lord that reveals to Cornelius that he is to call Peter and ask him to come and talk to him. See, the angels, the powerful host of heaven, are, as the third century theologian Origen says, in the service of your salvation. That is Luke's conviction. When the Lord revealed his host to Joshua on the eve of the entry into the Holy Land, their number was as great as the stars in the sky. And the people of God have always understood that we live in a crowded cosmos. Origen goes on to say, everything is filled with angels. It is precisely this sense that the world around us is enchanted that gives Luke the profound conviction that prophecy is being fulfilled right in front of his face. That in Christ, the fullness of all things, the fullness of time has come. The ascension at the beginning of Acts is not his absence, his departure to a different place, but his presence through a deeper and more personal means the presence of his spirit. Christ becomes present by the power of his spirit to his saints. 
And as the saints begin to preach his power, the power of his name and of his cross, prophecy is fulfilled in surprising ways, shocking ways. See, the, the Old Testament prophets had foreseen the day when Israel would be gathered in again from exile. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we see that prophecy fulfilled as Peter preaches to the Israelites from all nations who were gathered at the temple for the Feast of Pentecost. And each one hears the gospel in his own language. And 3,000 are added to the body of Christ that day. And here in our passage this morning, I want to argue, we see embedded in this text the bedrock conviction that the gospel is going to transcend the particularities of ethnic Israel and is going to enfold all the nations. And Luke sees this moment as a fulfillment of multiple prophecies. Luke is such a master storyteller that the details of this narrative all matter. They're all really important. The Ethiopian eunuch is a paradox. He's wealthy. He's of high station. We know this because he's riding in this fancy chariot. In ancient Near Eastern kingdoms too, eunuchs, castrated men, that's what the word eunuch means, were often highly placed in wealthy civil servants. And indeed we learn in this text that the eunuch was in charge of the whole treasury of Kandake. This, this is sometimes translated into the name of the queen of the Ethiopians as Candace. But the term actually means the queen of the Ethiopians. It's not a name, Kandake. But we'll go with Candace. And at the same time, the text gives us many clues, if we know the scriptures at all, to help us understand that this man is deeply alienated and deeply marginalized. He's a paradox. A man of high station, but deeply alienated and deeply marginalized. First, across the ancient world, eunuchs were despised people. They were understood as a kind of half-man because they could not sire children. They could occupy high stations in the royal courts, ironically, only because they were not seen as dangers to the female courtesans who populated these royal spaces. And in Israel itself, eunuchs were further marginalized because Deuteronomy 23 prohibits any castrated man from joining the Jewish assembly. This is probably because eunuchs were associated with idolatrous worship. Different idolatrous religions in the ancient Near East had castrated male priests that served in the, served in the temples. The scholars debate whether this man was a Jewish proselyte, meaning someone who had converted to Judaism, or a God-fearing Gentile like Cornelius, who we learned about in Acts chapter 10, one who was attracted by the disciplined monotheism, the moral rigor, and the intellectual formidability of the Jewish scriptures, but has not himself converted. I mean, he's certainly one of the two, for he's reading out loud the scriptures of the people of God. But I think the text gives us reasons to believe that he is the latter, a God-fearing Gentile, rather than a proselyte. Now, first is the fact, the very fact, that he is a eunuch. He's forbidden from joining in the assembly. This man would forever be on the outside looking in. An admirer who could never enter the gates and ascend the holy mountain of the Lord. Can you imagine the pain this man felt admiring this faith from a distance his namelessness in the text accentuates this here is a man who despite all his standing in the courts of Ethiopia has no standing among the people of God but secondly the text tells us that he does not understand the meaning of the suffering servant passage that he is reading from Isaiah chapter 53 which indicates that he does not have any intimate acquaintance with contemporary interpretations of that passage including messianic ones and he invites Philip, he does this explicitly, who has intruded upon his afternoon, kind of surprisingly, 
to be his rabbi, his teacher. And Philip is eager to do so, driven by the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit to proclaim the power of the cross to the eunuch using the same book that the eunuch is reading. Philip must by now realize that the reason the angel has commanded him to go speak to the eunuch is so that the scriptures in Isaiah could be fulfilled. Because in Isaiah chapter 56, there is a promise that in the restored Israel, that God's people, when people, when God's people are gathered in together, together again, there will be a place for the eunuchs. Here's what Isaiah chapter 56 says. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple, within the assembly of the people of the Lord, and within its walls, a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Luke sees here in the baptism of the eunuch, in his rejoicing at receiving the Holy Spirit, a fulfillment of this scripture. He is given a name that will endure forever. His name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and he has been included in the assembly of the people of God. But we should also see in this text a second fulfillment of prophecy. It's no accident that Luke highlights in this text the fact that the eunuch is Ethiopian. He's not just any eunuch. He's Ethiopian. Because Luke sees in the baptism of the eunuch a fulfillment of a prophecy that appears in Zephaniah. See, after the exile, Zephaniah tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples. Not the people of Israel, but all the peoples. That all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered people, will come to present their offerings. Likewise, Psalm 68 says, Let Egypt come with gifts of precious metals. Let Ethiopia bow in submission to to Almighty God. You see, the ingathering of the nations was the plan of God all along. And Luke sees it happening right here in front of his face, as the Ethiopian eunuch is called. This is the beginning of the reconstituting of the people of Israel, so that it includes not only ethnic Israel, but all the nations as well. No detail is lost on Luke. The beginning of our passage when the angel tells Philip that he is to meet the eunuch on the road to the south, the word there is mesembria, which can either mean noon or south, depending on the context. And it's likely here that Luke intends the ambiguity, because elsewhere in Acts he tells us that noon is the hour of revelation. He highlights that it is at noon that Paul receives his vision of Jesus as the Messiah. It is at noon that Peter receives his vision of the sheep being lowered down and the Gentiles included the covenant. This is the hour of revelation. Noon is the hour that the gospel goes south to gather in the nations. And this detail helps crystallize for us that here we have the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. 
So for Luke, the advance of the gospel, the fulfillment of prophecy, the sense of expectation of the intimate presence of God among his people, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the name of Jesus, the power of the cross, elicits a deep excitement and a deep joy. He writes with an imagination that is enchanted. It has been reformed by the work that God has done in crossing boundary after boundary, rescuing people that everyone in Israel knew were beyond saving. His cosmos is enchanted. It is dominated by Christ who has ascended in order to fill all things, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, There is freedom. There is liberation from darkness. There are boundaries that are crossed. If a person as deeply alienated and as despised as this eunuch is can be saved, then who is beyond the reach of redemption? Nobody. And Luke's mind is buzzing with the possibilities of that. And these pages are marked not only with the sure confidence of the power of the gospel, but with great rejoicing. But where are our minds and our hearts today? Do we live in a closed cosmos? Are we closed off to the sense of expectation? Are we cynical? I know that as I read this passage and I contemplated what to say this morning, that I felt in my heart places that were closed off to this world. People that I saw as beyond the reach of redemption. And I had to repent. God is calling all of us to repent for hardness of heart to anyone that we imagine is outside the possibility of redemption. Do you live with the profound conviction of the power of the cross? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom? Or have you lost your joy? How How do our hearts come into the assembly this morning? Take note of that. As we come to the Lord's table, if your heart is not filled with joy, ask the Holy Spirit to fill it with joy. Ask the Lord that you would be able to see his movement. Because it's time to start praying again, Ascension, that the Lord would allow us to see where he is on the move, that we would begin to see boundaries that we would never expect to see crossed, crossed. Because there is no barrier that humanity has set up that the Lord cannot overcome. And when the Lord animates his people to see that the world is full of his presence and his power and that the Holy Spirit is on the move, we will begin rushing to catch up with him. We will recover our joy. We will begin to see the cosmos not as a secular place, but as a place that is filled, that is buzzing, that is crowded with his presence. We will say, as our psalm for today says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among mortals. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.